0: Well, Hebrews chapter 3. You know, several of you expressed last week that our little recap, our little walk through Hebrews was helpful in, in, uh, in, in seeing where the author is going and in seeing where we have been in having boxes to put things in. It is easy to lose the forest for the trees, right? I mean, this is a, a theologically dense book. And so I feel like I need to kind of zoom out, as it were, sort of on Google Maps and remind myself uh, where He's taking us on this path. So I'm going to spend five minutes again. Let's go through it so we know where He is going this week. He starts off in verse 1 of chapter 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. The author is then going to call them to hold fast to their faith in Jesus Christ. Don't go back. Don't turn back to Judaism. It will not save. Don't place your faith in the creation, but rather in the Creator. That the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is God of very God, the exact representation of the Father's nature. He is superior in every way, and nothing, watch this, nothing is remotely close to being worthy of our worship. Certainly not the angels, as powerful as they are. They were not created to rule but it was man who was created to rule. Man was to be the vice-regent to rule and subdue this earth. But our natural response is, yeah, but he didn't do such a good job. I mean, Adam kind of blew it, and frankly, so have every one of us since then. Man failed, and you would be right. You would be right. But Jesus as God incarnate, Jesus as the God-man did not fail. And he is the one who has fulfilled that role and lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved. He has conquered sin and death and God has raised him and he now is seated at the right hand of God. He is sovereign over all and he is ruling. That rule is not consummated, but it has started. But you may say, Well, with all this suffering, with all this chaos, it doesn't doesn't seem like He's ruling. It doesn't feel like He's ruling. I can't see Him. And the author says, then see Him in the Word. For what you cannot see with Him reigning in heaven, you can see Him in the Word. You can see how this God of all the universe who sunk Himself into human flesh, speaks and the waves are calm. He makes blind men see the lame walk. He raises the dead. He does what no man can do. See Him in Scripture. So that in what you can see, you can trust Him in the areas you cannot But then you can imagine the response. It's still really hard. Suffering is really, really tough. I get what you're saying, but I still feel like no one one understands what we're going through as Christians. No one understands what it's like as the church. And besides all that, I'm fearful. I haven't suffered to the point of death yet, but, but I know it's coming. And again, the author says... I know. But Jesus understands. Jesus understands your suffering. For no one, no one on this earth has suffered more. No one has been tempted in all things and yet is without sin. No one has gone the full breadth and depth of temptation and yet did not succumb, nor did He run. He understands our fears He understands our temptation to quit in the midst of suffering, and yet he did not quit. And then you can imagine another response, I know, I know that doctrine. I've been taught it from the time I was a kid. But the fact is, I need help, and I still feel alone. And in the last two weeks, the author said, let me give you another picture Let me tell you about Jesus, the high priest. The high priest who stood in our place as the mediator, who absorbed the just wrath of God that was due for us, who now stands in a point and a place of mediation to help us, to pray for us. He has not only been with us in solidarity on this earth, He is with us in solidarity. He stands with us and in front of us. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. For assuredly He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become... what? A merciful and faithful high priest. I need help. I need someone who understands. He says, Jesus. Jesus, the merciful and faithful high priest, not only understands, He's down on the field with you. And He gives help. He is able, verse 18, to come to the aid of all those who are tempted. We might sum it this way. When you suffer as a believer, when you suffer for being a believer, remember, the eternal Son became like us, suffered to save us, and identifies with us. It's almost like the author of Hebrews is singing for us the most worshipful, him out there. The most God exalting, theologically rich hymn that just continues to crescendo and crescendo. And the bigger Jesus gets in our minds, because let's be honest, even on our best day, we have a small view of Jesus. The bigger he gets, the larger the object of our faith is, the more clearly we see him and the smaller our sufferings become. Amen? Now, if we're going to do this today, I'm going to need some feedback, okay? Because this is some rich stuff. Let me try this again. The smaller our sufferings become. Amen? Yeah, they fade into the background. Come on, let's just be honest here. When we suffer, if you're like me, it does not matter the level of suffering. I protest the pain. I hate the pain. So therefore, I try to control. And then I worry. This author says, no, you hit your knees. And you realize that the one who will come to your aid is the one who has experienced everything over and over again. And yet he didn't quit. And by the way, and I love this part right here, Jesus is also your champion. He's the victor. He's the one who came and suffered as part of God's plan to kill death in the death of Christ. So the other thing is, hey, reality check, what are you really worried about? Because you will never experience eternal death. You will never experience the wrath of God. And that's where He's taken us so far. Now... Look at our text today. Tell me if all this doesn't make sense. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, okay, therefore we just covered all that, right? Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, circle this, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession. We might say it this way. Think about who Jesus is for a moment. In fact, I want you to to think about Him in comparison to the greatest man you've ever known. And for this first century church, that's going to be Moses. It's going to be Moses. Think about Jesus. Consider Him for a moment and think about Him in light of the greatest hero you've ever heard of. And what he's going to do is he's going to compare Moses to Christ in two ways. He's going to compare the builder to the house. Jesus Christ as the builder, Moses as the house. And then he's going to compare the son to a servant. Now, we're going to see what characteristics explain both of these, but um, let me not spoil it yet. Can I pray for us? Gracious Father, it is a delight to be with the body of Christ today, to be with family, called out body of believers, a group of redeemed rebels. You have saved us by the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, and you are shaping us into his image as the bride of Christ. And Lord, we know that Christ is among us in a special way today as we proclaim and preach the Word of God So, Father, I pray that You would remove any worry, any anxiety, any distraction from our minds. Make us sharp for Your glory this morning, Lord. Deepen our faith. Help us to understand more rightly the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that no matter what we're going through, no matter what challenges we have, and we know we've got a lot going forward, that we would anchor our faith in the immovable Object, the rock of our faith, Jesus Christ. Father, for those who are here today who have never thought deeply, in fact, they've never considered Jesus, they've never repented of their sins and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that today, today would be the day of their salvation. Today they would enlist under the captain of their salvation, the very champion of our faith, Father, may we just drink deeply from Your Word today. Encourage the saints. Encourage them. I know there is discouragement in the body today. May we rest in Your sovereign goodness. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, the year is 1486 B.C. And one of the former princes of Egypt is coming upon his 40th anniversary in the Sinai Desert. The desert was a far cry from the marble floors of the royal palace where he once walked with authority and prestige. His view is that of a a dusty mountainside now, which is vastly different from the palatial gardens of Thebes and the Sphinx that line the gateway. Things have changed. This has been his home since the killing of an Egyptian for beating a Hebrew slave. He no longer considers himself an Egyptian, and yet he's not actually with the people of his birth. He's a Bedouin shepherd with a Midian wife, and he's doing what shepherds do, watching sheep. For 40 years. You see, you don't pick up on this by just watching Cecil B. DeMille. It's not till you get in scripture that you realize that Moses spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert, and then 40 years leading God's people. And that's where we find him in the desert. That is until he got the call call from the burning bush. Let me read it to you. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey." Verse 9, "'Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt.'" I will send you. And so, God sent, literally, apostle. Sent Moses. That's what apostle literally means. He was was the sent one. And he was to be a deliverer. And that is a literal meaning for Savior. So, this is interesting. In the Greek Old Testament, we see this Greek word, apostle, used. And yet, look at verse 1. The apostle and high priest, Jesus. These comparisons are going to be interesting today, and and what the author is going to do in making Jesus look good and exposing His greatness is not to diminish Moses. He's not going to do that at all. The gap is so great in comparison, he doesn't have to. He's going to talk about Moses' faithfulness. He's going to talk about how he was sent. Moses was an amazing guy, let's be honest. He was sent to be a Savior. And he was also faithful, faithful as a servant. Listen to God talk about him in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him... I speak mouth to mouth. We might say face to face. No one had this kind of relationship with God. No one would speak to God as with a man. What Old Testament figure besides Moses had to cover his face because of the Shekinah glory that came forth after spending 40 days and nights up on the mountain? And he was faithful. He he was faithful to act as God's servant in caring for the needs of Israel. Through God's miraculous hand, they were fed daily. Moses led them to water. He judged their cases from dawn until dusk. He fought their battles for them. He never clocked out. He was the faithful shepherd of God's people that he had been with sheep. He also interceded for them. When they all deserved to be killed, the Lord's anger burned against them. It was Moses who interceded. In talking to God, he said, remember, remember Isaac and Abraham and and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as far as the stars, as the stars are of the heavens And of all this land which I have spoken to you, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Translation, Father, You promised. Remember, God, You said. And He stood in the gap. He interceded. Look, there was no greater hero to the Jews than Moses. And rightfully so. He was an amazing guy. He also wrote the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah, or the Pentateuch. I mean, if you're a Jew, Moses is who you have hanging on your wall for inspiration, right? You read about Moses. You want to be like Moses. You name your kids Moses. No, he's the guy that inspires. And we need inspiration, don't we? Do we need inspiration to get through tough times? I would say yes. We need to know our history. We need to read our biographies. These are real stories with real people going through real problems and really enduring. One of my favorites, you've heard me say before, is a biography about Jonathan Jonathan Edwards by George Mardson. And it's great because everyone thinks of Jonathan Edwards as as this, you know, great leader of the first great awakening and he was. But you know what? That's only half of it. That's less than half of it. He was a guy who inherited a difficult situation with difficult people and was eventually run out of his church and he endured. He endured because he trusted. And so I look to Jonathan Edwards for inspiration. But inspiration only carries me so far. I don't know about you. It's kind of like hearing a motivational speaker get you fired up, going to see a patriotic action movie. Boy, man, you get into it, right? But then by the time the end credits roll, reality sets in, Hey, Jonathan Edwards is dead. I love him. Reading a biography inspires me. A little bit. Not a lot. I need help now. I need someone to get on the field with me to stand in solidarity. I need a high priest now. The author says, verse 1, consider Jesus. That doesn't mean give Jesus a try. That's not what that means. That means consider him, think deeply about him. He's going to do two comparisons this morning the builder as compared to the house, the son compared to the servant. Watch how he starts this off when he's talking about considering Jesus. He makes a familial connection with them. Look what he calls them in verse 1. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He immediately provides perspective amid persecution. Think about it. The author is saying, hey, brothers. He's already made that connection with Psalm 8 that Jesus is our brother. Partakers of a heavenly calling. Solidarity again. What kind of brothers? Holy. Set apart. What kind of position? Ambassadors for Christ. Followers of Christ. Those who take a message to a lost and dying world. Consider Jesus. The word literally means applying one's mind Diligently, fixing one's attention in such a way that the significance of a thing is learned. Meditating on it, not in an Eastern sense, thinking about the deep truths of who Jesus is and what he has done. Especially against the backdrop of my faith is weak. You see how all this theology is coming together? I don't understand. No one understands. I feel alone. Consider Jesus. I'm going to compare Him to the greatest man you have ever known, but consider Jesus. Brethren, those who have been called out, set apart, consider Jesus. My faith is weak. Think about Jesus. What is that connection that is there? I'm crying, my faith is weak, and he's saying, think about Jesus. But my faith is weak. You me explain it? It's really important. Your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. Your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith. you have faith in a rock, it's not very good faith, okay? You have faith in a crystal, it's not very good faith. But faith in the God of the universe, ah, now we're getting somewhere, okay? The object of our faith is what determines the strength of our faith. By the way, just side note here, I want you to challenge people the next time they so innocuously use faith. Well, I just have lots of faith, In what? Can I ask you in what? In who? Challenge them on that. That's how that word confession is here. Confessing Christ as Lord and Savior. It is a vow of commitment. And what he's going to do here, starting in in verse 2, is he's going to say, hey, Moses was a great guy, and Moses was surely inspirational. And, and Moses was faithful. But you need an intercessor. Inspiration is good. Intercession is better. Dead guys are wonderful to read about. A live Savior. That's the object of our faith. Verse 2, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. But, verse 3 For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Both were faithful. Both are worthy of honor, but one is worthy of so much, one is worthy of glory. Can we just say that? One is worthy of glory. One is worthy of worship. Honor is different than worship. The Creator is worthy of all that I am, responding to all that I know of Him. The creation is just meant to be admired. Hold fast to your confession. What's my confession? I committed my life to the Creator and the Redeemer, not to Moses. We understand this principally, don't we? If you look at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, it is an amazing work of architecture. But no one would say that St. Paul's is worth more than the architect, the great Sir Christopher Wren. In fact, without the great Sir Christopher Wren, St. Paul's is just, it's a heap of rubble on a construction site in an overcrowded city that is not policed very well. And that marble without Sir Christopher Wren would probably be in your bathroom somewhere. You see the level of this? If you're a Jew, you get it. And it's not meant to be offensive. It's meant to be a reality check. Moses was part of the house. Moses was the creation, not the creator. I remember in the 90s, early 90s, uh, Joe and I were walking through the streets of Rome, and we ducked inside an obscure church There was nothing special about it, and we came upon the great Michelangelo's Moses, which is this massive marble structure with lots of different statues. Even Moses is on sort of the first tier, and he's eight foot, four inches tall, sitting down. It is magnificent. Pope Julius II commissioned it in 1505 to be the front part of his tomb. Michelangelo did not even finish it until 1542. Moses is one of the most amazing works of art out there. But it's nothing compared to the creator, Michelangelo. It's just a rock without Michelangelo. He was the creator of that. practically speaking, the author brings us back to the only measure for strengthening our faith. Listen here, this is very important. The only measure for strengthening our faith. It's not inspiration. It's realizing the object of your faith and putting your trust in Him. It's considering Jesus. We might say it this way, it's fixing your eyes on Jesus. I don't think anyone explains it better than Paul from prison in Philippians chapter 4. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. And I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul saw the strength of his faith as a direct link to calling upon the object of his faith to help him. Strengthen me, Jesus Christ. Strengthen me. I do believe Help my unbelief. That's the picture we have here. Moses can't help you there. Jesus can. Oh yeah, Moses was kind of a high priest. He wasn't the actual high priest, but he, he, he interceded. But that was for a congregation that died in the wilderness. And Moses himself died. And they still kept having to do sacrifices. But Jesus, the one who paid it all and said, It is finished, rose from the dead, now seated at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Jesus prays for you. I do believe. Help my unbelief. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, now look at the next comparison. The son compared to the servant. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. I mean, there is no doubt that Moses was faithful. And this is not the word for slave here. This is not doulos. This is a a very high-ranking servant. He was faithful as a servant, a trusted servant employed individual, you might say. But Jesus, Jesus was faithful as a son. You might think of it this way. Knowing the head maitre d' at a very, very expensive five-star restaurant might get you that table that no one else can get at 8 o'clock on a Friday night. You might be able to walk in shake his hand. He's got you on the list. He bumped you to the top. That's a big deal. That maitre d' is above all the other employees there. But how does that compare to be able to walk in unannounced, see the son of the owner, have him get up, walk over to you, shake your hand, invite you to his table and give you a free meal. You see the difference? As high as the matron d' is, he's still just a trusted employee, but, but the son. Hey, tell the chef to make something special for us. I don't care what it costs, you bring me the Dom Perignon. You see? Why? Because he owns it all. He owns it all. He's the son. He's the heir. And Moses, of all people, knew this. He knew this. Deuteronomy 18.15 The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Moses prophesied about the Messiah. And guess who preached this verse in his second sermon after healing the lame man? Peter. He quoted the same verse. Jesus is our high priest. He is faithful. It's not that He was faithful. He is faithful. He has been faithful. He is faithful to see us through until the end. He who began a good work in you, what? Will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That Philippians 1.6, that ought to give you the, the greatest encouragement out there. He will sustain me when I cannot. The faith that He gave me at salvation will carry me through until the end. I'm going to hold fast to my confession. The anchor of my faith. The anchor for my soul. And it is understanding this in the midst of suffering. It is understanding this against the backdrop of suffering that will cause us not to turn around and wring our hands over the suffering, but to give Jesus all the glory. Listen to Paul. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. wow, I thought we were talking about how my faith was weak and how I was suffering. And now I'm singing praises and glory? Giving glory to God? Consider Jesus. Think deeply about who He is, what He has done, and what He is doing. And so you may ask, okay, well then, understanding this what is to be my response? And the author of the Hebrews says, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 6. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, there's that, that top and tail. Confession, hold fast to our confidence. Our confidence is in our confession. Confession. Our confidence is not in our own strength. It's not even in our own faith. It's in the object of our faith. It's in that commitment that we made. And what was the first century creed? Jesus is Lord. He's Master. He's Lord. He's not just Lord of your life. He's Lord of all. He's Lord of your suffering our response is to hold fast and to boast in our hope to live loud for Christ. So let me take five minutes and let's just get extremely practical here. Okay? The remedy for weak faith is to one, consider Christ more clearly. I would encourage you to write these down. To consider Christ more clearly. We'll talk about how to do this. Number two, to hold fast to him more tightly. Consider Christ more clearly. Hold fast to him more tightly. Boast in him. Number three, more loudly. This is not going to be some cheap psycho babble. Don't worry about it. Change your circumstances. No, 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 no. The Bible calls us to repentance. Repentance, the word is metanoia. It's a change of mind that always results in a change of direction. The author is effectively saying, change your mind about who Jesus is. Have a clearer picture about who Jesus is. But I'm suffering. My faith is weak. Think about Jesus. Because if I just change your circumstances, you're going to find something else to worry about. Can I get an amen? Oh, we're all guilty of that. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thanks for getting me through that. (gasps) Oh, I completely forgot. I need to worry about this next. Right? i got a whole list of things that I need to worry about. He said, no, no, no. Consider Christ more clearly. Fix your attention on Him. So what does that mean? I'll give you some practical. You may find other ways to apply it. It certainly shouldn't be less than this, though. Actually set your alarm before 7 a.m. I'm going to say 6, okay? But before 7 a.m., get up. Get a cup of coffee. Get your Bible. Read a chapter. Think about it. Don't think about it with your phone there. Don't read your Bible on your phone. Put it away. Put it in a drawer. Do not check your text during this time. Do not check your email during this time. Turn the dinger off. Don't be afraid of silence. Don't be afraid of thinking deeply. Take 20 or 30 minutes. You don't have to read a lot. Maybe read half a chapter or a chapter. Think about it. How have you been thinking of Jesus in a manner less than he is. Okay? Because in doing that, you've been dishonoring God. How do you glorify him? You think about him like he is. Higher. You understand who he is and what he's done. Get in the habit of considering Jesus every morning for an elongated period of time with just your Bible, your pen, and your coffee. No phone, no TV, no distractions. We have become a people in the 21st century that can no longer think deeply about anything, especially the God of the universe. If you want to strengthen your faith, if you want to honor the very God who has saved you for all eternity... Give him a sacrifice of your time and think more deeply. Number two, hold fast to him more tightly. You've heard me talk about this before. When trials arise and you feel yourself starting to worry, you can feel the heart rate going up. You can feel the vasoconstriction, the adrenaline rush, the the cloudiness of your thinking. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You can look it up when you have a chance. Hit your knees. I mean literally. Literally. Literally, hit your knees. I'm not going to tell you just pray. I'm going to tell you to worship in a posture of prayer. If you're in a grocery store, then as soon as you get home, put the cold stuff away, go into the closet, get on your knees, and pray to the God of the universe, the Lord of your circumstances. If the Son of God... Was willing to hit his knees in Gethsemane and pray to God the Father, how much more should we with our just little bit of suffering? Hit your knees. Pray like you believe it. Thank him for the trial. Pray for strength. And then reaffirm your commitment. And you may have to do this over and over again. You may have to break the the, the cycle, the habit of pain hits, now I worry. No, pain hits. Now I hit my knees. You see? Be a Pavlov's dog about it. Ring the bell. Pain. Hit my knees. Replace that sin with worship. Number three, boast in him more loudly. Christ said that out of the mouth the heart speaks. Genuine faith will be loud. Don't tell me you're a quiet and shy person. If you're a Christian, you're loud about your faith. Period. That's a fact that's biblical. We're to boast here. Doesn't mean you have it all together. People ask you how you're doing. You don't have to give them a a southern churchy answer, a wonderful, just great, Lord's blessing me. You don't need to do that. You just say, it's tough times. I'm going, I'm really, I'm struggling. But you know what? I serve a risen Savior. I serve a Savior that intercedes for me. I, I serve a Savior that understands what it's like to be tempted And you know what? He's good, and He's sovereign. That's what it means to be vocal. People are going to quit asking you. Use that opportunity. Tell them. Tell them. Be bold about it. If we're so bold to ask God to reorder things or reorder our heart, whichever one, and help us through it, then we should be bold to proclaim Him. How cheap it must be to ask for all these things and yet not be willing to identify with Jesus Christ. Another good way to do it is after you've expressed what the Lord's doing in your life or how you're trusting Him, ask someone, is there a time in your life when you've repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Has anyone ever shared with you the gospel? I'm telling you what, you cannot be bold, vocal like that, and worry at the same time it's just mentally impossible. It really is. This is such a good thing. Be bold. He was bold for you. Real faith is loud. Let me give you an illustration you won't forget on on boldness. If faith is a gift from God, we talked about that this morning, and the object of our faith is God, then the faith that He has given us is not some sort of milquetoast faith. The power of the Holy Spirit is not some sort of weak, you know, uh, misty spiritual power. It's like having a 500 horsepower V8 under the hood. But in order to use that thing, you've got to put your right foot in it. It needs to be loud, you need to be, it needs to kind of kick you in the pants. You need to feel that torque. That is available to us as believers. But we've got to be bold. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in us. And then when you do this and you do this regularly and you do this habitually, then I want you to see your discouragement fade more and more into the background as simply momentary light affliction to the eternal glory that awaits us. Amen.